Ladies and gentlemen, tonight it's my pleasure to be able to share with you three poems I would like uh, very much uh, to read because they're so nicely in accord with this holiday season. They're parables about Jesus, and they come from my latest book, Persian Poetic Renaissance, uh, uh, which is available. Um, it's Dialogic Poetry Press, but it's immediately available for you from Amazon. Uh, let's go. Now, it happens, I, just as a word or two of background, that in the Middle Ages in particular, uh, during the time that I call the Persian Poetic Renaissance, because uh, Persi poets writing in the Persian language, whether they lived in anywhere between Spain and India, uh, created in the course of uh, 600 years, from roughly 1050 to 1650, a genuine renaissance in world literature. And uh, one of the very interesting features of the these uh, poems is that they're all written by Sufis. Sufi, Sufism is a, uh, a, a kind of mysticism, mystical thinking, which arose out of Islam, but uh, con uh, contains plenty of Hindu influences, and there are some Christians who have called themselves Sufis. There are, uh, in other words, uh, very few limits or boundaries recognized as limiting exploration, and the idea w is to uh, transcend in Sufi thinking uh, all of um, uh, the uh, scriptural uh, religions that are codified. Sufi may have re a relation to Sufiya, which is wisdom in Turkish. Now, one interesting habit of the Sufi poets is they like to write parables about Jesus, uh, which uh, the Quran respects and calls the Messiah and says was born of a virgin. There's lots of reverence in Islamic tradition, the same tradition from which Sufism originates uh, for Jesus and uh, for Mary. Now, Jesus is a particular favorite because uh, you can, he's such a great teacher and so poetic minded that a poet can write new parables to, to uh, um, emulate those Jesus himself came up with. And I'll start with one by uh, Nizami, a poet who wrote in the uh, 11 and 1200s. Here we go. As Jesus wandered through the world, he passed one day a marketplace. Along the path, a dead dog lay, dragged to a nearby house's door. A group stood by the carrion as vultures round cadavers crowd, and one said, That offensive smell will utterly wipe out my brain. And one, it's more than I can take. What graves reject brings dreadful luck. And so to changing tune they sang the dead dog's body to disdain. But now, when it was Jesus' turn, he spoke without reviling, kind. In his warm-hearted way, he said, the teeth are white as any pearls. Hearing the words, the people felt like glowing muscles burning hot. 
They were so shocked and embarrassed by their by their lack of feeling being exposed, their lack of aesthetic understanding, poetic response, emotional uh, openness uh, to some attractive aspect of this creature of God, the dead dog. Uh, that uh, uh, what shall I say? They. Uh, 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 they, their faces were burning hot. The, the heat of their faces, the redness, is compared with the look of mussel shells that were burned in ovens to make lime for bricklayers. Okay. Now, here, here's an interesting thing. Where did I get this? For starters, I got it when I translated uh, a, a book by uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Goethe, the author of Faust and Germany's greatest poet, he wrote a, a book of poems called East-West Divan, or East-West Collection, and in that he, he played the role, actually, of a, of a Persian pub poet of the Middle Ages. He thought he might like to uh, imitate such people as Nizami, and he translated th this into German. I translated it into English from his German uh, in his notes and, and essays for a better understanding of the Divan, which I also translated uh, for the first time into English, by the way, uh, in that uh, Amazon available book, um, West East Divan uh, by Goethe. And um, oh, where am I? Where am I? Yes, Goethe translated this, this parable about Jesus by Nizami, and he thinks it is quite marvelous. Moreover, what especially interests us tonight is that he wrote a parable of Jesus in the Sufi style. I think it was inspired directly by Nizami. He has a couple of pages in which he comments on the on the muscles, the, the making of lime, and all kinds of technical aspects of ancient Persian culture. Goethe had an omnivorous curiosity. It's a good thing we have. We actually honor him with a street in Binghamton, my hometown. Uh, it's called Goethe Street, which is often called Gothi, uh, but that's okay because uh, makes it pronounceable um, by everyone. Now here then is what I will offer next, Goethe's legend. He just calls it legend. Ill-known and thought of little worth, our Lord went walking on the earth. Disciples came along and heard, but rarely understood his word. He favored holding court outside. On roadways, there the world is wide. We speak below the heaven's face, more freely, unconstrained by place. He made the highest doctrine heard from holy lips in winsome word. With parable and likeness he let marketplace a temple be. He traveled in a tranquil way upon the road near town one day. A broken, gleaming horseshoe rested. Please get it, Peter, he requested. But Peter's mind let in no gleam. Entrapped in an ambitious dream about the world and how to lead it. Ambition's hungry. Dreamings feed it. On endless thoughts they tend to dwell, and these had pleased St. Peter well. He scorned the fragment with a frown. A scepter's better, or a crown? To bend one's back and reach for half a horseshoe? It could make you laugh. St. Peter turned away his head. He hadn't heard what Jesus said. The Lord, the horseshoe lifted, 
calm, that, and he and Peter journeyed on. That closed the matter. Aim attained. They neared the town. Their goal they'd gained. A blacksmith had a happy thought. For pennies three the shoe was bought. Appealing marketplace. Nearby, some cherries fine enticed the eye. So Jesus buys however many they'll give him for the triple penny. That he had kept, you may believe, wrapped well within his folded sleeve. A little farther now they roam, field, meadow, sea, but not a home. No trees the walkers would await. The sun shone down, discomfort great. In such a place of blazing heat, a cooling drink would prove a treat. The Lord walked up in front, and he let fall a cherry carelessly. St. Peter grabbed it, seemed to see an apple from a golden tree. Delicious, he appeared to say. The Lord walked on a little way, while letting fall another cherry. Again proved Peter, eager, very. So Jesus kindly would allow St. Peter many times to bow. When this had lasted quite a while, spoke forth the Lord with gentle smile. If you had bent a bit back then, you wouldn't have to bend again. Who care for little things won't take, for littler ones must effort make. Well, that's with our second parable, and now have I have um, uh, prepared a third one. Or, uh, I translated it. Of course, everything's I've newly translated into English. All of these uh, uh, poems from the German. Where do I? What is this German book I'm talking about? It's true that the Nizami poem was got from Goethe's West East Divan, West East collection, but the rest of the poems in the book are all from. Uh, a, a, a uh, what, let me make sure I quote the title right. It's uh, an anthology of an in, encyclopedic length with uh, 200 poems. 200 poems. Uh, and it was composed by Josef von Hammer, a great translator, a great poet and a, a great uh, student of uh, Persian poetry, and he calls it Geschichte der schönen Redekünste Persiens mit einer Blütenleser aus 200 Dichtern. That is, history of the uh, fine arts of eloquence in Persia, uh, together with uh, a, um, a bouquet, uh, an anthology, actually, uh, anthology and bouquet and and florilegium in Latin all mean a bouquet of a collection of flowers. Anthologies of poems were regarded as an, uh, uh, the same thing, just in words rather than plants, as a bouquet of flowers. So um, poems, 200 poets he chose uh, to select from, and he published it in 1818. 
So, he publishes, among many, many other things, and I chose, by the way, only 15 poets from the 200, but I translate seven poems by each, and then I answer each one with a reply, and I even write a, a, a second answer for each one, which I call a blogatelle, which can be either in verse and pro or prose, uh, and my, my, uh, my re replies are, are more immediately focused on the poem itself rather than context, as with blogatelles, and when in the replies, uh, there I always write verse, usually in the form that I've been taught. You'll see that in a minute. I'll give you Attar's Parable of Jesus in the Soup Pot, one of my super favorite poems in the world, and then I'll give you my little reply, of which is of about the same length. Here we go. Parable of Jesus and the Soup Pot. The barley soup that Jesus ate was julep sweet, gave pleasure great. He took a pot full, savored it, was quickly done, then left as fit. His lips were feeling better, bitter though, with taste of clay. Quite strange, the woe. It all was fine before, he said. Explain this, pray, and clear my head. The soup that's really bitter now was sweet. I do in truth avow. The pot replies the best it can. Lord Jesus, I'm an aged man. Bowl, basin, pot, this world of me has made. I'd often shattered be. Returned into the potter's yard a myriad times. I've bitter grown in all my forms. For that, you see, I've been most acrid latterly. That wonderful? Jesus is the sort of person to whom the pots will speak, but he has already intuitions that there's something, there's going to be something worth hearing if he asks the pot for a bit of autobiography. Here's my reply to Attar. I'm challenged as interpreter, though glad, yet with my head a whir. A major question yet remains. Why first the pleasure, then the pains? The meal that fragrant flavor bore made Jesus feel he'd favor more. Why then did sweetness quickly fade? Why savors sweet so bitter made? Our words convey a mood, a taste. Who hearkens to a few in haste, a fine impression well might gain of mainly pleasure, rarely pain. Yet unaware, we may exude aromas of a woeful mood that sad, unconsciously distilled, the spirit had with rancor filled. A friend, bestirred discerningly, may learn what we have ceased to see. We to a stranger may reveal a wound untamed that cannot heal. We're largely to ourselves unknown. Will latter age our depth have shown? Preemptively improve your mood. Be thankful for your gratitude. 
Well, I think I made that clear. I hope so. That's the purpose of my replies, is to clear things up a little bit. But that's a fascinating little parable, isn't it? We, we can uh, bear within ourselves not only the, the scars, but uh, the positively uh, uh, palpable effusions of past hurts and damages and resentments and grudges. The pot is still full of uh, really resentful dislike and hate and, uh, uh, at what he's been through. Uh, uh, and th th these may, these may, since we don't even recognize them in ourselves, uh, exude also a, a kind of uh, atmosphere that is felt by intuitive people. And they may wonder what the cause of it may be, and you yourself well may ask, because it's very, very hard to know yourself. And this is, in fact, a theory uh, that's well uh, developed in, in Sufi teaching, uh, the, the idea that we don't know ourselves, despite Socrates' motto, know yourself, if you try it, you'll fail. Socrates did not claim that he had succeeded. He knew he had failed. We cannot know ourselves, and there's a wonderful um, bit of Bible uh, commentary that uh, the Sufis love to use to support this idea, uh, because in the Bible it says God uh, made hu humans in his likeness. Well, but the likeness of God is to be unknown. We know really nothing whatever about God. Even the mystics, in fact, particularly the mystical writers that were often seeking the real depth of religion, uh, admit that God, as he really is in himself or in self or themself or herself, whatever it might, however you think of it, is not knowable, not verbalizable, not uh, cognizable. Uh, and in, in fact, uh, there's no way at all that we can get intellectual knowledge about ultimate being. The only way, the only only approach that works at all, and that only in a main, mostly opaque and fragmentary fashion, is imagination. Because however unknown God may be, if he's thought of as a creator of, of the, the worlds, the usually plural in Arabic writings and Persian writings, uh, if he is a creator, then he must have imagined this world into being, being the spiritual force he is and having the spiritual power of imagination that he had. That is how you get the, uh, the world that we live in. So if God imagined the world and God is an unknown, perhaps we can, uh, with our kindred unknownness, uh, muster up something like a kindred power of imagination and, and get some kind of inkling of ultimate being that way. I hadn't planned to go into these uh, extra matters, but I'm so happy I did. And I want to thank everyone who has listened to me. Thank you.